Good morning. How's your weekend going? Do you think it's going to be better after you leave here or worse? I don't know. The challenge is on. Thank you for that. It's, this book lands hard. I'm going to tell you that right now. Last week in Nehemiah was great. We're at the very end of Nehemiah. And it would have been better if we just ended last week in a great celebration of God, you know, worship, enjoying him. But Nehemiah does not end that way. And somebody gets it, right? That's where we're going. So um, it's good, though. Jesus gives us this for a reason. So who here has missed a flight before? Like you just, yeah? Good. Because the first service, people were afraid. They must be very tight because they're afraid to admit it. So why do we miss flights? I've seen this so many times. Usually what happens is, if it's an early flight, you know what happens. You, you forgot to order your lift on time. You didn't get up in time. What I normally see happen uh, back in the day, sitting at the gate, and usually it's always a family, right, with little kids, and they're running for the gate, and they probably, the kids are like in their pajamas, and there's a pillow, and they've got like their Mickey Mouse ears on, and they're getting ready to fly to Orlando. And, you know, you can see them coming. The door closes. The plane pushbacks. And they run up to the gate, and they're like, I'm sorry, you're too late. There's almost never will they pull the plane back. It's just never going to happen. I saw it one time. We hate that. We hate that. And it's always like I tried so hard. I, you know, I, you know, do you know how hard it is to get kids up at 4 in the morning? And I you know, paid a lot of money for this ticket and this vacation. Like We got all our money hedging on this vacation. And you're going to tell me that you're not going to pull the plane back. Yes, I'm going to tell you that. And it's hard, right? And you... You need to feel that, and if you've ever felt that, you know how hard it is, even if you miss a connection because of weather delay. You just get deflated. This is Nehemiah today, but times exponentially. He's that guy. He ends up going back to Babylon to you know, work with Artaxerxes because he's the cupbearer, and he comes back to Jerusalem and friends, he spent 12 years of life doing this, right? He's given up a career for this. And he comes back, and he comes back to Jerusalem after this great worship service we saw last week, and it's like a sideshow. It's, it's not good. And you, you, I almost think like, hmm, Lord, wouldn't it be better to end Nehemiah better? You know, you know if I would have written scripture... I would have been like, I don't know if that's a good way to end it. Because here's how the story of the Old Testament feels like to me. Especially because Nehemiah is chronologically the last thing that happens in your Old Testament Bible. It's it. It feels like there's, you know, uh, there's hope in the beginning, right? God's like, yes, there's a tragedy, but there's hope coming. So the beginning of the Bible is about all that could be. There's hope out there. We understand that. That's kind of how life starts for us, too. Now, as we get into the history of Israel and the monarchy and the judges and the prophets, we're like, oh, this is going to take longer than we thought. And you start to see the gap between God's promise and our experience. And so life becomes all about what should be. It should be better than this. We should be able to walk in what you've given us to do. And I'm just going to give you a heads up. By the time we get to the end, the culmination of the Old Testament, it's what's never going to be. It's tough. It's what's never going to be. And so that, that's what it feels like. 
So I want to get you ready for that. Um, it, it feels like the gospel is just do better. Get there on time next time if you don't want to miss the flight. Well, I tried. Well, you did your best, but your best ain't good enough, right? We know how that feels. We know how that feels. So we're going to be in chapter 13 of Nehemiah. If you're joining us from at home, welcome. We're glad you're here. Grab uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 4. And we're going to start at verse 4 and take it to the end. I'm going to read it basically in in two movements. The first movement, you see Nehemiah come back in, and it's all about the temple. So he's coming back, and the temple's not right. Um, Nehemiah had gone to great pains to purify it and to make provision for it. And uh, I'll just put it there, so we'll talk about that. Secondly, we'll move into the fact that they're not, not just disregarding the house of God, but they're disregarding his word blatantly, right? Uh, they're just, they threw away the Sabbath. <laughs> uh, and they're not separating themselves for worship anymore, so we'll talk about that. And at the very end, we're just going to try to make sense of this whole thing. We're going to try to make sense of it. I suspect we're trying to do it anyway but we'll make sense of it together. So let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into Nehemiah chapter 13. Dear Lord, uh, I am so thankful that we didn't write this story. Um, We know what we yearn for, and we know you're bringing it to us. And so we, we, as, as John said, we submit ourselves to your word, and we ask that you would open our eyes this morning that we might behold its beauty and its treasure and its glory. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Here we go. Chapter 13, verse 4. Now before this, Elisha the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and he was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. So that's 12 years after he first showed up. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came back to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So Eliashib's the high priest, And his role, at minimum, is to keep the temple prepared so people can come in and experience the presence of God. But he brings back Tobiah, who's kind of like a a governor of, of the Ammonites, but he's related to him. So he chooses power over purity. It's more like, hey, Nehemiah, you can go back to Persia. We gotta live here. This guy's not gonna leave. So he he clears out some space in the temple where they would store the tithes. And he, puts, he sets Tobiah up in there. Verse 8, And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portion of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to his, each to his field. Do you remember a couple weeks ago? We are obligated. We're going we're to make due for the house of God. We're not going to deny it, right? We're not going to neglect the house of God. Except we are. 
So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them at their stations. Then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as a treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pedaiah the, of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mattaniah. For they were considered reliable. Side note, that's a good trait to be considered. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. And then he lifts up a prayer in verse 14. Remember me. <laughs> Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. He comes back in Jerusalem as a sideshow. The beautiful, powerful worship the yes, God is committed to us and we believe in him and we trust him and we're gonna support the temple because it's where God has ordained to meet us and we're waiting for the Messiah and we're gonna worship him with everything we have and we're gonna give her the first fruits. And Nehemiah rolls out of town and they're just like, we're done. Why did that happen? I don't know. This is probably for a good reason. Maybe there's pressure. Obviously the nobles and the leaders weren't taking care of business. And the Levites, right, those who are the tribe of Levi, where the priesthood comes from, they are overseeing temple worship and the sacrificial system and bringing, preparing the people for worship. They're not even doing their job, and the people aren't giving tithes, so they can't be paid. So they and the singers just go back to their fields because they kind of got to make groceries. And so the whole thing kind of falls in on itself. And Nehemiah shows up. And he sees Tobiah is in the house of God, taking up space where these ties should be, and he just throws his furniture out. Violent. Throws it on the courtyard. Get out. He says, we're going to do this better. And he tries to reform it. He says, no, 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 no. You guys got to watch the gate. Nothing profane comes into the courtyard or into the temple. And he tries to set him up again. And then he just bows the knee and prays, oh, God, don't forget me. Friends, the temple was where the localized presence of God was for Israel. So when you're neglecting the household of God, in this context, what it's really saying is, I'm not really assuming God's going to be here. I'm not really presenting myself for his presence, right? I don't expect him to show up. So it's not just neglecting the house of God because there are issues within the community. It's saying, I got other things to do. I don't know that spending my life waiting for God to show up really is going to make it into my life. So it was, it was neglecting God. So think of it this way. Let's say that somebody offers, like, is going come to over, come over to my house for dinner. And you come over and you show up and they're not there. And then they're out in the backyard doing some other stuff and like trimming bushes and like, oh, that's right, I invited you over, and sorry, you know, I, I, I'm not no food or anything. Hey, can you run up and get some Chinese food or something, or just, you know, whatever you want, bring it back, and they weren't expecting you. See, hospitality is when you come over, and they're like, they got things laid out, they got some hors d'oeuvres, they got some, like, jazz playing, right? Like, they're ready for you. It makes you feel like they're expecting you, because they are. Israel was not expecting Yahweh to show. And God forbid that they were because they just weren't that interested. 
So Nehemiah had set them up for purity, to be in the presence of a holy God. And what was, his, what was he wanting? Well, you know, if you've ever read Ezekiel, Ezekiel is in Babylon before um, Nehemiah was there, but he would have heard his prophecy. And there's a very interesting prophecy that you've probably heard before. Uh, it's very beautiful. And it prophesies the return of the glory of the Lord to the temple. Chapter 43, uh, verse 5. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. See, the glory of God was gone. Nehemiah wanted it back, and he wanted it back now. And in his mind, the way we were going to do that is we were going to reestablish the sacrificial system. We're going to do what God called us to do. We're going to do better. He wanted it. Right? He wanted worship to be there again. He's not happy. He's not happy. So let, let's jump in to the next movement here. So it's not enough that they're neglecting the house of God. Now they're neglecting the very word of God. So we will jump in right in verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrants also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us, that's exile, and on the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? As soon as... As it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them, hear them, and I said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves, come and guard the gates, keep the Sabbath day holy. And then he prays, remember this also in my favor, my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I'm going to finish the text, well, most of it. Verse 23, And in those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on the count of such women? 
Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehada, the son of Eliashib, so probably his grandson, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalot, who happens to be the governor of, of the north region by the hand of Persia, so probably Samaria. Therefore, I chased him from me. So in other words, he'd entered married into the priesthood. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated their priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. 30. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. So, as if being unmoved by God's presence in the temple wasn't enough, what Israel did was they continued to work on the Sabbath. Why? I don't know. Maybe they had work to do. Maybe they thought it wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe Exodus 20 was more of a guideline for them. But the fourth commandment is to keep the Sabbath holy and do no work on it. You are your servant or your animal, right? Because God created the heavens and the earth in six days and the seventh day he rested. So God calls them in commandment to stop. Stop on the seventh day. It's, it's, it's for you. It's a grace. I delivered you out of Egypt. Oh, by the way, how many days a week did you, did you work under the hand of Pharaoh? That's right, seven days a week. I don't do that. I rest and I enjoy my creation. And you're going to do the same. You're going to take your eyes off of your work and you're going to put them on my work. We're going to keep it holy. And you're just like, eh, I don't know. No, that's, no, no, we're good. And they were working on the Sabbath and they let people come and buy and sell up against the wall. Man, I'm surprised that Nehemiah didn't do more. And then... If that wasn't enough, they neglected the house of God, they neglected the word of God, and Sabbath-keeping was the key marker of Israel. It's just like saying, no, we don't care. We're not your kids. They gave away their kids. They neglected their children. Now, in our cultural moment, it's like, that doesn't make sense to me. What is he talking about? So intermarriage was not about the races. It was about the simple fact that when you marry somebody that worships other gods, you too will worship those gods. And Nehemiah said, like, you don't, you know, Solomon's smarter than you, had more money than you, was the wisest man around. If, if it overturned the kingdom because he started worshiping other gods, you think you're going to get away with it? Where's your logic? You're giving your kids away in marriage to the nations around us. They're losing the language. And if you lose the language, you lose the ability to worship. He gets violent. He throws down on some people. Drags them around by their beard, probably. What is the gospel here? Well, we've already said it. The gospel right here, right now, is do better. 
That is a very odd way to end the Old Testament. Is it? Is there more here? Jesus walks into Jerusalem too, right? Do you see, do you see the pairing? This is Palm Sunday. Do you know how Jesus and Nehemiah were alike? Well, Nehemiah died to a lot of stuff to make this happen, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Nehemiah walks into Jerusalem, and he ends up cleansing the temple, if you will, like Jesus did. Remember that? Jesus is going into the temple, and he ends up kind of getting violent, but not like this. So how are they alike? They have a heart for worship. Nothing matters more than uniting you to the living God. That's where they're both at. Where they diverge is Nehemiah uses the law to beat them down and says, you've got to do this. If you don't do this, the Messiah will never come. If you don't do this, the glory of the Lord will never fill the temple. If you don't do this, Ezekiel's prophecy is a waste of time. Jesus, Palm Sunday, ends up going into Jerusalem on the cult. Now, true, they were worshiping him, but probably most people that were saying Hosanna were probably expecting Jesus to have the power of God, which they'd seen. You know, he raised Lazarus from the dead, which just was like everybody's losing their minds. They bring him into Jerusalem. They most likely assume the Messiah, the Christ, is a political leader and a general. He's going to take Jerusalem back from Rome. Jesus doesn't use the law to beat them down. He actually has his beard torn out. Right? He takes on every inhuman just shame. He takes that on and he bears the weight of the law. This is where Jesus and Nehemiah part ways. I mean, Nehemiah is not the Christ, right? This is Jesus goes in and he does that for his people because he absolutely knows. He knows this story and he knows who he is. And he knows there's absolutely no way this is going to work if the gospel is just do better. Friends, what do we learn from this whole book? Why in the world is Nehemiah in here? Why does God put this? And in the Hebrew Bible, it's just about at the very end. Why is this the way the Old Testament closes? I'll tell you why. You will never save yourself. I promise you. If you believe that this book is a collection of stories, when if understood, teach you how to live so that God would someday accept you or you can be better than somebody else, let Nehemiah tell you it's never going to happen. Israel's never going to be saved by their faithfulness to God, by their just willing it up, by their obedience. It's never going to happen. The law is never going to change a heart. It cannot. You can't change your disposition and what you love. Friends, sin means at the end of the day, I am most interested in what I think is going to make me happy. That's, that's the evidence of sin. 
And we're just like Israel, every single one of us. So Jesus is better. That's what Nehemiah, Nehemiah is dark, and he ends this way. I, I love this. Very, this is the end of the Old Testament. Remember me, O God, for good. That is a prayer of despair, and that's a prayer of hope. It's despair because everything he's given his life for was a huge failure. And I don't think there's anybody that could say he, he chose the wrong thing. He chose the right thing. God put this on his heart. Remember me, God. Remember what? For good. Please bring some fruit out of this. That is a prayer of faith. He's still looking forward because he believes somehow, someway in the dark resources of his heart. You don't pray that. You don't draw near to God and pray that prayer if you believe there's no way this is gonna, there's, if God can't bring something good out of this. He knew it in his history. He knew, it for, he knew for the future it had to happen, and he trusted God. Bring something out of this. I'm done. I tilled the ground, and nothing happened. And from my perspective, this was a big waste of time. But remember me for good. Despair and hope. Okay. How do we take this? How do we land this? It landed hard, didn't it? Let's get it off the runway into a big crater. Here is what is redeeming about this. This is so dark and so black. It sets up the pinprick of light of the true Messiah, which ends up being glorious, burning brighter than the, the, the fire in Sinai. Writing, it, it, the light has come into the world through Jesus. So here's what I want you to take away from this. The two things that they could not have in this book, Nehemiah, was righteousness and rest. And they're tied together. They just couldn't work it out. I believe they actually wanted to, probably more than you and I do. So the call is to embrace Jesus as your righteousness and your rest. That's it. That's in Nehemiah? No, <laughs> it's not. It's, it's Nehemiah on the knee, pointing forward. Embrace Jesus the true king, the true temple, the true house of God, the true Messiah. Embrace him as your righteousness and your rest. See, here's what you want. You want a reason you can stand before God. This is, how, this is why culture is falling apart. We shout people down because we've got it right. The reason you want to be righteous is because you want to be accepted by God. It's that simple. That's what you want. And we believe if we're right or better than, more right than somebody else, we can prove it. God somehow will accept us. No, friend, that is not going to change your heart. So embrace Jesus as your righteousness. Here's what that means. He's the end of the law for you. The law doesn't matter? No, the law does matter completely. Jesus was born under the law, and he obeyed it completely. 100%. That's really good news. Before he died for you, he lived for you, right? We know that without holiness, no one sees the Lord, right? Hebrews 12 tells us that. Jesus does this. He lives righteously in faith before God the Father, and then he opens up, he kicks open a door of access, not in the temple, but through his flesh, so that you can have access to God. I'm just going to read this real briefly because Hebrews is such a great exposition of that. 
Hebrews 10, basically the writer is teaching you how Jesus is better. And he says, hey, we all know that blood's of the blood of bulls and rams ain't going to get it, right? It's not going to take away your sin. It was a shadow or a blueprint of the one to come, Christ, and that we, we will be sanctified through the offering of his body, right? Uh, by a single offering, he perfected uh, for all time those who are being sanctified. Um, big idea, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, right, he's righteous, by the new and living way that opened up through his, opened up through, um, opened, I'm going to start over again. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Right? That's why the curtain was torn. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, let us draw near. If you don't believe you're righteous before God in Christ, you will never draw near. Nehemiah dropping the knee and praying to God is him drawing near. Let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance, Heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You receive it by faith. Romans tells us that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for you. If you receive it, it's kind of up to you. Are you going to stand before God on your own works? Or are you going to stand before God in Christ's works? And if That's faith. And if you're going to stand in his works, you're going to stand with confidence and you're going to go. You're not going to try to clean yourself up before you have fellowship with God the Father. Right? Embrace Jesus as your righteousness, and he is your rest. Have you ever completed anything in your life? No, you haven't. Every time you get something done, there's something bigger to do. God knows you cannot rest until something's finished. And here's what needs to be finished. Jesus runs the race for you. Right? It is finished in John's gospel. That's his last words there. He has finished. He not only lived for you, he bore the punishment of your sin. He didn't come down you and beat you up with the law. And honestly, forget about God's law for a minute. You can't even live up to your own voice. You probably beat yourself up with your own law, your own voice, and what you didn't complete or what you did wrong. And you just can't draw near to God. But Jesus opens that way up and makes it possible, and therefore you have rest. You know what rest is? Being in the presence of God without running away. That's heaven. That's rest. Nehemiah wants Easter. Do you feel that? He gotta have it, but he's trusting that God will provide. Oh God, remember. Remember. That's how the old, oh God, remember. That's how the Old Testament closes, fades to black, 400 plus years of silence. I actually think Nehemiah fancied himself as a John the Baptist. Make, you know, open the ways for the Lord but he wasn't. He tried. So we enter that rest as we believe. Can I just ask you, are you drawing near to the Lord? If you're embracing Jesus as your righteousness and your rest, it's all about proximity. Well, I feel distant. Well, I do too, honestly, many times. Do you draw near to the Lord? What do you think Nehemiah was? You think you feel distant from the Lord? Probably. Go to the Lord. Let him be your righteousness. Let him take the weight of the law for you. Let his right life be a gift to you that you open up every single day. Go there. Draw near, as Hebrews tells us. You're going to find your rest there. This is what Nehemiah, this is the gift that the tragedy of Nehemiah gives us. That we might celebrate the beauty and the power and the glory and majesty of God in the face of Christ. So embrace that. Give you new life. That's what you want, don't you?
We all want that, giving you life. It's there for you. Take it. Surrender your story to him. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you. Um, this is hard to read. It's hard to, I, I, it's hard to read. Um, we know that you sustained your Old Testament people, Lord, just the same way we are through faith. And we know, Jesus, that you have put sin to death, put death to death, and your resurrection opens up access to the Father, and you don't need to stand in Jerusalem because you're at the right hand of the Father on station in unchecked power. Love it. Love it. You, you are worthy of worship. So help us to understand that. Let us find our righteousness and our rest in you and draw near. And it's in your matchless name we pray, Jesus. Amen.